You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Great. Uh, a warm welcome to everyone uh, in the room and online as well uh, from the Medical Humanities uh, Seminar Series here at Trinity College Dublin. Um, we're simulcasting across uh, Zoom uh, to the clinical sites, uh, as well as based here out of the Trinity Longroom Hub, um, our Center for Advanced Research in Arts and Humanities. And uh, medical and health humanities is one of the growth themes uh, in this uh, in this area. And so we have uh, a seminar series which is run uh, every month. So some of you are re repeat uh, returning uh, people who are, are familiar to us, and some of you are also new. Um, and uh, my name is Nicholas Johnson. I'm on the steering committee of the group, uh, and I'm an associate professor in the School of Creative Arts. Um, and I work with the Global Brain Health Institute uh, in the role of arts and health lead. So uh, I'm here today to give a really warm welcome to an old friend and colleague, uh, to Alex Mermakaides. Um, and Alex uh, is the Doily Cart Senior Lecturer in Arts and Health, uh, based in the Medical School at King's College London in the UK. Um, one of the exciting things about Alex's profile is that um, she is a theatre person, what we might call a, a person of the theatre, um, but based in a medical school, in a school of medicine. So it's an exciting uh, interdisciplinary configuration from which uh, Alex comes. Her research interest is in contemporary performance and its relation to the medical encounter and to the medical humanities. Her publications include the forthcoming Routledge Companion for Performance and Medicine, edited with Gianna Bouchard, Performance Medicine and the Human from 2021, and Performance and the Medical Body from 2016, also co-edited with Gianna Bouchard, and explores discourse of the human and humane within medical performance. Her research also involves devising performance about medical experience with her theater company, Chimera, as well as developing performance-based pedagogies in medical and nursing education. Her work has featured widely, uh, including in The Guardian, The Times Higher Educational Supplement, Nature Immunology, and on This Week with the BBC. So over to you, Alex. Thank you so much. You're very welcome to Trinity remotely. And hello. Hello. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Um, hello, everyone. I'm so excited to be part of this. Um, what did you call it? A long lunch. Uh, it sounds so exciting. Um, and to be connecting with uh, you folk there. Uh, in a recent article in the Irish Journal of Medical Science, a certain very, very clever gang of researchers, Desmond O'Neill, Shelby Zimmerman, Brendan Kelly and Hilary Moss, called for the development of research and scholarship in the medical and health humanities. As they set up their argument in this paper, they mention that artists' investigations of health, illness, and healthcare provide uniquely penetrating insights of relevance to this field. So in this presentation, I'm going to focus on one such art form, performance, my own, um, and I'll be thinking about the capacity of performance to generate insights, so to function as a research methodology in, in this field. I don't know how penetrating my insights are, but I hope there'll be something of interest to share. So I'm offering by way of an example, uh, my own project, which is under the working title, Drama of Dissection. Um, and this involves me making a performance about dissection, specifically its use in medical education as a means of learning anatomy. So medical students first encounters with the body of a deceased donor is a significant rite of passage into medical professionalism. And it teaches, I will argue, more than anatomy. So this idea of dissection and anatomy 
has long attracted the attention of artists and of scholars in various disciplines. So in medical education, of course, in the medical humanities and medical sociology within that and the arts. Um, and much of this body of literature has been concerned with the emotional, psychological and attitudinal impact of practicing dissection on future doctors. So dissection is the, considered the gold standard for learning anatomy. This encounter with the real thing teaches the arrangements of organs, their physiology, in a way that perhaps textbooks or digital resources can't. That's the argument. Um, but how do we balance this against the potential negative impact? So the anxiety it might provoke in students, the existential threat, the, uh, the moral injury that some report as they're asked to cut into, you know, people who are primed to, to care are kind of asked, invited to cut into the body. Um, of, a, of, a, of a being. Um, so some are concerned with the way this might desensitize students to the suffering of other people or might alienate them, set them from their own emotions. Um, other studies with business and increasingly uh, thinking about how to channel these emotional impacts that, um, that dissection has to cultivate appropriate values in the students. So one of the earliest studies of the dissection room by Fox and Leaf in 1963 um, proposed that dissection is a way of cultivating the detached concern that they felt was appropriate for the doctor. And now we would probably replace that idea of detached concern with kind of ideas of empathy and pa pa patient centeredness or person centeredness. Um, but it's a way of connecting dissection to those human values. So when I set out to research the DR, dissection room, uh, my research questions were along these same lines. My role at King's, which is supported by an endowment from the Doily Cart Charitable Trust, is, this is on my job description, to enhance empathy and communication in medical encounters through embedding the arts and humanities into the curriculum. So I've been assigned to part of the curriculum that is called Human Values and encompasses learning in communication skills, professionalism, cultural competencies, um, and the medical humanities are within that. So values that are aligned with, with some of those ideas of patient-centeredness, therapeutic alliance, uh, patient as person, doctor as person, which are wrapped up in the outcomes for graduates and the GMC. Um, so I was interested to know about what students learned about human values in the dissection room, uh, to the extent to which this might reinforce what I was trying to teach, or how embedding a performance into the medical humanities curriculum might um, complement what was going on in the dissection room. So that's the sort of premise of the project. Uh, here's a little overview of where we are. I should add that I'm in the middle of this project. So I'm going to be talking about the process and sort of interim findings. So I started this in spring 22, and that's when I started at King's College London. So King's College London, like Trinity College Dublin, is one of just a dozen or so medical schools that continue to do full body dissection for all their medical students. 
So others are increasingly relying on prosections or models or 3D designs for various reasons. And similarly, we house the regional anatomy office. So we're in charge of the, the collection and the bequests and collection and distribution of donated bodies for the region. And we run an annual service of Thanksgiving. Um, so as a sort of self-imposed part of my induction into the medical school, um, I took up invitations from my anatomy colleagues to visit the dissection room and all the anatomy infrastructure. So we have uh, a morgue, the very wonderful uh, museum called the Gordon Museum of Pathology, which is full of um, specimen and um, beautiful wax models, pathological specimens. I took part in courses on limb anatomy and um, tried my hand at a little bit of dissection, attended conferences and did all the kind of necessary reading, contextual reading that one does when we start a, a research project. Uh, so that took me through the spring and summer of 22, and then the students came in, and that gave me a chance to observe students as they encountered the dissection room um, and the cadaveric material for the first time. So I did about two observations from the graduate entry students who were doing a small intensive summer anatomy course, um, and eight full, day, full session um, observations of the main cohort of students. And we have 450 students in each year group. So that was a lot of a, a lot of students that were seen. Out of then, I managed to persuade 11 or so um, to engage with interviews with me and, and to become kind of a more integral part of the creative process. Um, since around spring of last year, um, I've been starting to turn the material that's come out of these, these kind of observation and interview studies into creative material. So I've done about 15 workshops or rehearsals, and we've given two public performances, Once, one at the Science Gallery in London and the other at um, University of Lincoln to their students and anatomy staff there. So... The project is starting out as a sort of ethnographic study along the lines of some of the other classic sociological analyses of the DR or of the medical school. Uh, there's a long association between ethnography, anthropology, as it used to be called, and social science on the one hand, and performance, my discipline. So what Gergen and Gergen in a chapter in this book called the performative movement in the social science. Um, and this kind of way of looking at life as though it were a performance, um, it comes to, comes to force particularly in observational studies. Um, it involves applying what they call a dramaturgic lens. So a way of looking at the world as though it were theater and through this becoming sensitized to patterns of relationship across time, the setting specific to these patterns, the stylization and plasticity of human action, and the possibility of altering such patterns through deliberation and dialogue. Um, so wrapped up in there is the idea of performativity. So that's the idea that, or sort of the understanding that social 
and professional roles or even gender roles or identities are brought into being through repeated behaviours. And those behaviours can be sort of scripted we, um, through role modelling or through um, explicit instruction. To be a doctor, you should do this. To be a woman, you should behave like this. So this is particularly apt for a project which is concerned at least to some extent with students, professional, medical identity formation. So that is defined as the processes of socialization whereby students learn to th think, feel and act like a physician, like a doctor. So ethnography tends to focus on observable human behavior. And so is closely aligned with a sort of theater that we call naturalistic. So when we talk about naturalism in performance, we talk about a kind of genre of theater in which what is presented on the stage or on the screen <clears throat> uh, is a sort of slice of life. Performers in this mode will act and behave like something like people in real life. The settings they inhabit will look something like the real life. Born in the empir empirical turn of the 19th century, naturalism turns the stage into a sort of microscope, taking a sort of biopsy uh, through which the audience might analyze the ills, the social and psychological ills of the characters. So it invites what um, theatre scholar Kirsten Shepherd Barr calls a diagnostic gaze. So this photo of a lovely group of people gathered around a gentleman, uh, that gentleman is Anton Chekhov, who is one of the most renowned naturalistic dramatists. And I chose him for this because he is also a doctor and his ability to analyse human behaviour is often attribute, attributed to that status. But I'm schooled in a performance traditions that want to move away from naturalism. So we, we're kind of moving away from performers behaving as they would in the real world, a sort of walkie-talkie type, type of acting. Uh, and using the full expressive capacities of the body to manifest what in naturalism might be implied through subtext. So a, a classic example of this expressionistic mode is Martha Graham's 1930s dance piece called Lamentation. And it's a dance uh, by Martha Graham in a kind of tube of um, stretchy fabric, which moves with her as she moves. And the idea is that we just let someone in. Um, and the idea is that the movement of both body and fabric um, convey what it means to mourn, to be in lamentation, grief. So rather than reproducing the actions, the stance or the gestures or the words of a woman who is mourning, uh, the whole kind of ensemble of body and um material try to find a form for grief. This sort of performance also capitalizes on the expressive capacities of the whole stage, not just the human body, of space and objects, of sound, 
So this is an image from a show I saw on Monday, which is a revival of Pina Bausch's Nelken at Sadler's Wells. So in the show, there's 21 performers. It's a piece about the abuse of power, really, or how kind of power imbalances pertain over time. Uh, so 21 performers, but your attention is equally drawn to this floor, which is which is completely inhabited by pink carnations. And there's a churning array of furniture, tables, chairs, a microphone stand, at one point two scaffolding towers from which performers jump into a, a pile of crates. Um, towards the end, a fairground fortune teller booth is rolled on. They, all these objects hold equal status with the bodies. And equally, this sort of performance tries to make space for the immaterial, not just the material body and object, but emotions, histories, power dynamic discourses. They try to make them visible through the body, but also through sound, rhythm, movement. We'd call this sort of expressionistic or neo-expressionistic. So primed with this as a kind of theatre background, the dramaturgic lens that I bring um, might be described as follows, though this is how I've described it elsewhere. So the arrangement in time and space of bodies, words, gesture, objects, spaces, technologies, movement, an understanding that the specifics of how people form, move, speak expresses both the inner world, sensation, emotion, affect, subjectivity, and the social, economic, political, power, and cultural dynamics that surround us. Artists working in this, in this sort of expressionistic traditions tend to make their performances through devising. So devising is a way of making theatre that is not the singular vision of one person. So that of the playwright who might write a play or the director who might reinterpret that play. The idea is often to involve all members of a creative process, a creative team, so set designers, costume designers, composers, performers in generating the form and content. And often the form and content is made through iterative processes of discussion and improvisation and exploration and trial and error. So you start off not necessarily knowing what you will end up with. So it's, it, it's a pro, as a research methodology, it's kind of messier than uh, some more conventional or um, empirical approaches. Uh, these are the people that I gathered for this particular project. So working from the gentleman at the top. So this is John M. Armstrong and his specialism is designing with light and magic effect. So as a stage magician and also a lighting designer. The lovely Alicia Britt uh, works with puppetry and object animations. So she makes designs and directs puppets. 
Uh, the lovely lady in a red wig is Phil Hambly. She's performing here in a piece called Golem, which um, actually uses digital effects to create a sort of cartoon world. So Phil is a physical theatre performer, so something between dance and theatre. Um, and she's also a former nurse, kind of add in, so she's got a medical background. Bottom row, the lovely lady is Bex Law. She's also a performer and a dramaturg, so she works with the words and the structure of the theatre. Um, and she's a former doctor, so she's been through medical training um, and practised for a couple of years before abandoning ship and going to theatre. Um, and um, this is Matt, who makes sounds, particularly through these amazing 80s vintage uh, synthesizers. So these lovely people joined me on the project and also went through their own induction into the DR. They, some of them were funded by an uh, artist in residence scheme called King's Artist that allowed them to spend to do visits to the dissection room, to the Gordon Museum, uh, to talk with staff, both academic and technicians, and also to, to involve, to talk with our group of students um, and really kind of get a, a sort of mini version of my induction into their medical school. And um, yeah, they responded differently, quite different ways to that experience. Um, to, we also sat together to look through the observation notes. So I had written up a load of um, sort of vignettes of things I had observed um, and they had taken their own notes and we looked through the interview transcript and we did a sort of um, informal round my kitchen table thematic analysis. And the idea of this was to help identify some of the themes and see themes and scenes that seemed ripe for artistic exploration. So in my observations, I was struck. So this is an example where one of the themes or some of the themes came up. So in my observations, I was really struck. Well, we all were very struck by the ways in which cadaveric material, the bodies or the prosections or pots were presented to students. So how this revelation of much anticipated or perhaps dreaded object was stage managed by staff. It was often very, very carefully done with full account of students' potential response to it. And in ways that did, um, as I was kind of exploring, speak to the human values that we all seek to cultivate. This was often done through processes, slow processes or careful processes of revelation. So on the student's first day, the main cohort student's first day, the anatomy dems fold open the leaves, the sort of box to the top of the dissection table, stainless steel, and they really carefully fold that open, watching the students all the time to note their reaction. The body is wrapped in opaque plastic sheeting and they carefully unwrap that. Can I continue? They say, they ask. 
some of the some of the bodies are still in their hospital hospital gowns. Some will have inco pads, sort of absorbent pads on their face, their arms, their hands and feet are wrapped. And those might be removed. Some demonstrators decide to do that and others don't. They might be, um, in many cases, they cover the face and the genitals to preserve dignity and to manage the emotions of the student. So there's this unwrapping of different layers, hard metal, of um, the um, slippy, thick plastic sheeting, the kind of grease-soaked inco pads, these different textures and materials that we really struck there. And Alicia, Alicia in particular, was her attention was drawn to that because of her interest in materials and fabric. As the body is that being dissected, um, opened, undressed, this sort of strange strip tease that is happening, the students are wrapping themselves. So they're putting on the white lab coat, which they wear in the DR. And that recalls the kind of stereotype vision, costume of the doctor. Doctors no longer wear white coats, but there's a way of, there's something about that, of putting on the blue gloves which speaks to their anxiety around, the, uh, around this moment in the DR. So in interviews, students talk to me about, you know, this being a test of whether they had what it takes to be a doctor. If I can't stomach this, one of them said, how can I be a doctor? How can I stomach what will come ahead of me? So something about putting on the coat, assuming the role and the discomfort or unease, a novelty of that. Um, sometimes, so putting on a role, yeah. and some, sometimes the um, bodies are assigned a role in a way. So, uh, for example, in the first exercise, students are invited to imagine the end of life experience of their donor. They expect the body, they look at, for signs of medical history or personal history on that body, and they're invited to imagine the end of life of the donor. One of the professors takes a historic pot, so a kind of specimen of a body off a shelf. We have historic pots that were made before the Human Tissue Act was brought in. And he, there's a sort of apology in the air. This, unfortunately, he said, is the spinal cord of a child about four, week, four, four years old. So this image of the child kind of appears in our imagination. And then we cut through the skin on the torso, continuing the opening up, the revelation of this body, and starting a process where in the disaggregation of the individual before us, is transformed into a kind of 3D mental image of a generalized anatomy, which students will be tested on thoroughly and causing much anxiety. So these are some of our kind of rehearsal images of how we play this with these ideas of layers and transformation um, of fabric that constructs uh, of, of moments in which um, a sort of 
stripping back um, brings something into being. So that's Paul Bex's head underneath the lab coats. And these lab coats have got the smell of formalin on them, kind of imbued with that kind of particular smell of the DR. Uh, this is John working with cling film, which we felt kind of spoke to the transparency of the body and his writing anatomical terms onto this. So these kind of ideas of the immaterial, sorry, the material being made material and vice versa. Uh, playing with light as well, light kind of conjured to us the way in which stories are projected. Um, and here Alicia is putting an array of very ordinary objects on the table and she's trying to project right, light so that the shadow creates an outline of a living being. And she's seeing if she can manipulate that so that can move. So here's some some of the ways these kind of explorations took form uh, when we performed at the Science Gallery in London. So just a couple of scenes from, from that. And it, this isn't a kind of full performance. What this is, is me talking and then these little kind of individual moments uh, that foreground a particular theme or idea from the DR that, that was drawn from our uh, explorations. So in this sequence, Alicia uses her ob object animation skills. So these are the skills a puppeteer uses to take an object and move it in such a way as to draw your attention to the object and to invite your imagination to see it as a living entity. So to animate an object. But here she's doing the reverse. She's taking the living hand of a performer, so that's Phil's hand, and she's moving it in a way that um, creates the illusion that it is a kind of dead object, an inanimate object. And that speaks to the kind of uncanny nature of the material in the DR, the bodies in the DR, which was simultaneously the artifact of a person's life and almost an artwork or an artifice, a resource, a teaching resource that had been constructed. Um, as she continues this kind of movement work, uh, it turns into a kind of movement sequence in which Phil, the coat is animated around Phil. She moves around the space and the coat is seeming to bat battle itself onto her and off her and eventually comes on her in ways that we felt might reflect something of the struggle to assume the role of a doctor. Um, this is the lovely John and he's doing his anatomy revision and he's doing that by drawing images on a whiteboard and this is something that is a feature on the DR. Many of the, each station has a whiteboard and students are often asked to draw or write or the Dems draw or write on it. Not usually this beautifully, I have to say. But as he draws, his pen turns into a scalpel, which he uses to cut through just above the sternum, along the sternum of that rib cage that has been drawn there. And then he passes the drawing through the whiteboard so that what has been black and white turns into colour. Bit of a 
uh, kind of uh, gimmicky trick, but effect, uh, but something about the threshold of moving, turning knowledge into life and life into knowledge and um, constructing herself in that way. Okay, so that brings us up to date with the project. Uh, where I am at the moment is we're preparing for the next performance, which is at the old Operating Theatre Museum in London. This is the, uh, the remains of the St. Thomas Hospital and um, the tiny little operating theatre uh, where uh, public surgeries took place um, and we'll be performing in that space. Um, on the 21st of March. The idea is that going forward is to work towards a full performance, which if the funding gods allow, uh, will be staged for, perform for students at King's. And if any other institutions or theatres are interested, would go beyond that. So the idea is for that for students, medical students, this will be an opportunity to recall and take stock of the experience to process its significance to their learning and their self-identity. For public audiences, we hope that it gives an insight into what future doctors go to go through. And I'm hoping it might help us kind of rethink the discourse, you know, the emphasis that is put on doctors to be empathetic at a time when their own um, well-being is, is and health is under stress, um, you know, under a somewhat underfunded NHS, and we've been we've been having doc, junior doctors' strikes at the moment. So a way of kind of turning the empathetic eye towards the doctor rather than asking the doctor to always empathise for the patient. For everyone, what I hope this will do is give convey a sense of the dissection room as an extraordinary space that challenges assumes notions of reality. Seeing the DR as a, as a total theatre in which bodies, objects, space, material and the immaterial are all effective and interrelational. And as it happens, this view of the DR uh, coincides with a recent spate of sociological studies, particularly one by Burr and Fox, but another by John Knott, that look at, that are shifting the focus away from the individual student and thinking about the dissection assemblages, like all the things that make up a dissection room. And what this means, remember that dissection is a sort of encapsulation of medicine more generally. For Foucault, scientific dissection, sorry, scientific medicine was born in the dissection rooms of the Paris hospitals. So, um, you know, make, make us rethink what medicine might be. Performance, I feel, is somewhat overlooked within the medical and health humanities. So this book, describes itself as the first textbook in medical humanities, 
and it's got chapters on narrative, film, the media, poetry, and creative writing, but nothing on theatre or dance or other forms of performance. Using art as a research methodology is recognised, well established actually, and it's recognised by the UKRI. So this is a blog, I think from March, actually quite recent one, um, where the, the leaders of the AHRC, which is the Arts and Humanities Research Council, um, talk about the way they're supporting practice-based research in the arts and humanities. And yet Klugman and Lamb's collection on research methods in health humanities hardly mentions arts-based approaches. So it's mentioned once under fiction writing. Um, and if I remember correctly, the people writing the fiction in that project are the participants rather than the researcher. So I hope that what I'm saying goes some way to persuading you that performance merits just a little bit more attention in the medical humanities. So the project speaks to some of the core concerns of old school med humes. So in exploring students' identity formation and perhaps the place of empathy within that. But using methods that prioritize the orchestration of body and object in time and space chimes with the critical turn in the medical humanities which concerns itself with um, ideas of embodiment, sensation, affect, materiality, relationality, sensation, the senses. Um, and in that way, kind of tries to challenge some of the binaries that have uh, plagued, they say, the medical humanities. The performance, I argue, is an especially entangled art form. It's interdisciplinary and collaborative in its processes of making. It's hybrid in its manifestation. Like the bodies in the dissection room, there's this uncanny hovering on stage between what is material and what is represented, between the real and the imagined. Um, a, a, performance is often open, open to multiple interpretations in the audience uh, when it is presented in a live encounter. So this, entangle, this entangled form par excellence, I would say, might help us challenge some of the binary thinking inherent in kind of modernist views of medicine or the, med the relationship between medicine and the humanities. Ideas of doctor, patient, object as object and subject, objectivity, subjectivity, science and healing, medicine and humanities as distinct things. If we can rethink the DR as a theatre space, maybe we can rethink performance to be like dissection, a form of knowledge production, um, a science in its own mind. That's me, thanks very much. Alex, thank you so much. A uh, very rich talk that I know chimes with many of the interests uh, that we have in the room um, for, uh, for our audience. 
And I'm very pleased uh, to welcome uh, in, in the format of our, of our method, um, we have a respondent usually giving the first comment as we hear back. So our kind of respondent discussant who we have today um, is uh, Dennis, uh, Dennis Berry uh, from uh, the Department of Anatomy. And uh, he's the current head of discipline in anatomy in the School of Medicine here at TCD. Um, his background is from neuroscience in the Department of Anatomy and Neuroscience from University College Cork. Um, he did his postdoctoral research into genetic brain disorders at the Department of Pathology and Cell Biology in Columbia University in New York. Um, he did further postdoctoral research fellowship on HIV uh, pathogenesis and cardiovascular disease at the Center for Research into Infectious Diseases and the Conway Institute of Biomolecular and Biomedical Research at University College Dublin. He was appointed here in 2013 um, after a stint at UCC and uh, I believe uh, is coming at this from a perspective of a, a, an anatomy theater, one of the great old anatomy theaters uh, here at Trinity, and also um, one that has an authority position over all of the medical uh, development that comes through uh, in Ireland. Every doctor who uh, dissects uh, is uh, is coming through that anatomy lab. So um, it's a very interesting perspective perhaps to bring for the first comment, uh, Alex, we're going to bring it right to the source of anatomy here at TCD. Um, so over to you, Dennis. Thank you very much, Nicholas. <laughs> Alex, that was absolutely fantastic. Um, I enjoyed every moment of that. And it, you know, it, it sort of at times um, resonated um, or part of your talk resonated so loudly, I suppose, with me. And, and that was that moment that you so well described whereby students first encounter their uh, donor body. And usually in anatomy labs, students would be assigned to a donor body and they would grow and learn from that donor body over the course of the entire anatomy program. That could be one or two years. And you're, you're right on what you say that um, we also have a, an annual dissection program. So students of anatomy at Trinity have the opportunity to learn from a new donor every single uh, year. And they have a chance to explore their body and um, learn with the donor as they progress through their training. And I think we sometimes can, can maybe think maybe a little ahead of ourselves and not maybe take a pause and to think sometimes of the remarkable gift that um, the donor has given to our student base and to our medical trainees. And we call our donors quite often, we call them our silent teachers because they, they do as much work for us as we do for, um, as we do for our students. And, I, you know, I suppose in the, the, the enhancement and the integration of um, our, as you see it, the performance arts into the medical humanities, I, I think is very symbolic and important and representative of the evolution of anatomy uh, and how it's been taught in, in recent decades and, you know, since it has become more clearly integrated into all medical curricula. So anatomy was used, was, was once upon a time pre-embalming, um, pre taught using plastic models and, and, and plaster casts and, and so on. And then embalming came in and, and, and now it's donors. And now, as you mentioned, there are simulation technologies and radiographic approaches that are complementing contemporary anatomy teaching uh, methodologies. And, and at the time of donation, um, um, our donors would, would assume that their bodies are being used for uh, teaching or research purposes. And I, I kind of can't help but think that this is a further evolution 
of how the discipline of anatomy is changing. And I think building and, and, and narrowing the gaps between the basic and clinical sciences, as well as the medical humanities, is an exceptionally worthy use of our donor bodies and very much would lie within the spirit of what they would have expected at the time of their donation. And I would like to thank you for that. Thank you, Dennis. That's that's wonderful. And wonderful to hear you uh, speak of the gift of the donor and the donor as a silent teacher. That's a common phrase I heard that that, that um, the donor body is the first patient and the silent teacher. So these are the, the sort of images, the characters that are conjured in the dissecting room and often through the really careful um, teaching methods used by anatomy staff and by clinicians. So one of the kind of key things I noticed um, uh, was the respect that the technician paid to the bodies. Imagine this is among um, yours. So one of the observations I made was, you know, kind of watching during one anatomy course, one of the technicians was showing us something on the foot of a leg prosection and it kept tipping over and he kept adjusting it. And then he realized that when he was adjusting it, he was putting his hand on the groin of the body part. And without any self-consciousness and not for show, he just always oh, said, oh, excuse me, sir. And then just carried on with the lesson. And it was that little moment of interacting with the prosection as though it were, you know, with great respect that, um, you know, that 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 really just that struck me about the, the kind of ethos of care that's in the dissection room, I'm sure in yours as, as well. Yeah, that's great, Alex. Thank you. Um, I received a, um, a direct a message as well from one of the audience members here uh, who actually attended that session. So I can conclude with a data point. Um, as a member of the audience, I can comment it was warm, joyful, and people felt heard and seen. Um, and there was a lot of discussion about how it put into tangible action their feelings uh, in the DR. So um, that's one testimonial to, to end on. And I hope that uh, those of you here also feel heard and seen um, and uh, that it was a warm and joyful room. So thank you, Alex. Uh, fantastic work. Um, I have one plug to finish on for the Medical and Health Humanities uh, Working Group, which is that there is a day-long symposium uh, next week uh, on the 7th of March. Uh, not next week, sorry, two weeks from now. Uh, sorry, terror reigns for a moment. Um, in two weeks, uh, the, there's a symposium of uh, community building and activity of research and medical humanities happening at Trinity that blends uh, all three faculties and uh, many disciplines within those. Um, so keep an eye on the Hub's uh, website for information about that. Um, it will be in person, it'll be uh, in, the, in the room, and there'll be parallel sessions from different researchers uh, in the college who work in this area. So it uh, should be a, a good conversation, a good opportunity to gather. Um, so thank you again, Alex, and a big warm uh, note of gratitude from us uh, in the committee and in the room. And uh, also thank you to Dennis for being such a clear respondent. Um, and we hope to see you again. Thank you. That's brilliant. Thanks for having me. Brilliant.